You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Stephanie, Matt, Tyler, for leading. I want to add my welcome and greeting this morning. I'm Eric Barton. I get to pastor the downtown campus, and I want to start off this morning by telling you about a breakfast meeting that I got to have this week. I had breakfast with a friend who also happens to be the pastor of another church in town. He's a longtime friend, a trusted colleague, a partner in the gospel. Uh, He's an older guy than I am, and he has been tremendously impactful and uh, influential. And I always greatly enjoy our time together, and so we were sharing, I think, breakfast brisket tacos this week and week, and I was going on and on about some struggles and frustrations and failures, and, and he said, yeah, I had the exact same thing, I had the exact same stuff going on, and this happened, and this happened, and man, we were really sort of empathizing and co-relating with one another, and I finally made some flippant comment about, you know, how hard it was to just be this enormous doofus, and he said, yeah, I, yes, yes, and then... He took his hands and he sort of slapped them down on the table and he said, gosh, you know, man, at the end of the day, it's really just about our obedience, isn't it? What would you have said? I admit it, transparently, candidly, confessionally, he's an older guy that I respect immensely, uh, and my tendency was to sort of nod slowly and go, "Mm mm-hmm, because whatever he said must be true. But as soon as he said that, it's really all about our obedience, isn't it? This alarm went off in my soul, and it sounded just like the book of Galatians. <laughs> I kind of paused for a minute, and I said, well, you know what, actually? Actually, the Sermon on the Mount comes before the cross. And I'm so glad it's in that order and not the other way around. I said, look, man, if we, if we try to obey our own strength, which I do all the time, I end up making a cosmic mess of whatever situation I am. And he looked at me like you're looking at me, not really believing that I said anything that was biblically accurate. I know. And I don't get it right very often. My family and elders will testify. But in that one moment, I think God used this series in our study through the book of Galatians to go, whoa, 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 that's not it. And this guy looked at me, he pushed back a little bit from the table, and he said, oh, man, you're so right. Thank God. Which has been a great little microcosm, I think, of our study through the book of Galatians. We have been in the book of Galatians this entire spring semester. We started it back in January. It's been 20 weeks. This will be our 19th and final sermon in the book of Galatians. As my friends in the aviation industry will say, the takeoff is optional, the landing is not. And so here we are now, finally, at the final series in the book of Galatians, the overarching theme of which has been Christian liberty, freedom in the gospel, and do not allow yourself to be fooled by any other gospel. There's all sorts of different repackagings and re-offerings of the gospel, but Paul will say over and over throughout the entire book, do not be fooled. The gospel that I preach... It's not mine. It didn't come from any person. It is the gospel of God himself. The good news 
the awesome announcement, the great story of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. This is not advice, this gospel. It is a declaration of an historical event that has changed everything. And so don't be fooled by any other notion. It's interesting that what my friend and I almost very quickly and easily sort of drifted into really is the pattern of every other system of belief in existence. And it goes like this. Believe, obey, be saved. And now you may hear that and go, well, yeah, that's it. That's, that's, how, that's how religion works. No. That is every other system of religion and belief. It says, believe, obey, and then you'll be saved. But Christianity shatters that. Christianity says, no, believe, be saved, and then you will obey. And it is all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. And so the overarching theme now, the landing of the series of the book of Galatians, is also going to be our big idea for the morning, and it's simply this. Believe, be saved, be. Now, I know enough about many of you that you're now going, okay, but what am I supposed to do? Nope, start over. Believe, be saved, and be. Then the Spirit of God will handle the doing in and through you. Yes, of course. Believe, be saved, and be. That is the message of the cross of Christ. We're in the book of Galatians. This wonderful book of Galatians that was the the, the spark that charged Martin Luther to Reformation 500 years ago this year. Luther, in his commentary to Galatians, which is to this day sort of the great grand authority of anyone that studied Galatians, he went back after he had written his commentary and he wrote a preface. And he said, I now feel quite foolish and feeble at what I have written. But I do not care. The wicked will oppose me, but these words are not for them. These words that I have written are for the weak, for the afflicted, for the tempted, for the frustrated, for those who have Galatian faith. I think it's Martin Luther's way of saying, hey, Eric, this is for you. Galatians is a grenade that sort of blows the cover off all of the things that we have sort of assumed were biblical by tradition, but Paul steps in and says, no, let's make sure we understand for freedom Christ has set us free. Now, here's what I'd love to do. As our final message, I'm going to read some of these passages, 11 through 18, and we're just going to sort of unpack this very briefly, and then we'll try to apply it very quickly. Chapter 6, verse 11. Paul says this, See with what large letters I am writing to you, with my own hand. Now, a lot of it's been made about this. What does Paul mean? What is he saying here? I, I'm writing this with large letters. Many people, and there's a high degree of likelihood in this, think that because Paul suffered with ophthalmia, an eye affliction, that his eyesight was really bad, and so when he did write, he had to write in very large letters. He will say the same thing at the end of Colossians, the same thing at the end of 1 Corinthians, the same thing at the end of 2 Thessalonians. Essentially, his scribe, what's called an amanuensis, has been taking dictation for everything 
in chapter 6, or from chapter 1, 1, all the way through 6, 10, he's been dictating, and this is some other person who's been writing this down. But here, in chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, just, just, just give me the pen, just give me the pen. And he starts writing. More than likely what's happening is Paul decides he's going to now bust out into all caps. So large letters, letters is not really big. It probably means he switches script and goes to all caps. I've gotten emails like this from some of you where this is your not-so-passive-aggressive way of really wanting to get your point across. I'm going to go all caps here, and then when I send you a text message in all caps, and I include, like, you know, an explosion emoji, now you know I'm serious. This is Paul. In lieu of emojis, he takes the pen, and he writes this himself, saying, hey, this is me. This is my great-grand emphasis and summation and conclusion. That's what's going on here. Well, he writes in verse 12. 12 and 13 go together. He says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not always keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul now sort of marshals all of his mustard strength and energy to say, I'm going to do one final message against the opponents of the gospel, these false teachers that have come in, these people who are called the Judaizers. And the central issue that Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians is legalism, the tendency to revert to and rely on one's, one's own efforts. Paul says, how do you know if you're legalistic? Well, there are two ingredients to legalism that we learn of in this little passage. Number one is self-projection. Self-projection. Always vitally concerned about your own image. Always vitally concerned with what others might think about you. You're always, always sort of saddled and burdened with your own self-projection. One of my heroes in the faith, Chip Ingram, puts it this way. He says, thus you are not believers. We enter into this world. And if you're not a believer, if you're not regenerate, if you're not indwelled by God's Holy Spirit, we enter the world with this problem. We are not who we think we are. He says, you are not who you think you are. You are not who others think you are. You are who you think others think you are. make sure we get that because he's dead on right and Paul agrees with him. You are not who you think you are. You're not who others think you are. You are who you think others think you are. And therefore you'll spend the bulk of your life trying to create, craft, manufacture, and massage some image that somebody else has of you, all the while forgetting that you really can't do anything to change anyone else's mind about you. So it's futility, it's madness, it's exhaustion, it is bondage, it is slavery, it is a burden. Paul says these legalists are always wrapped up in self-projection. Look, they want more and more people to, to be dragged across the line of their version of conversion, which is circumcision. They want more notches in their belt because they want the applause and the acclaim of men. What could be better than saying, hey, look at this week, Jimmy. I got 14 Gentiles circumcised. Well, that's, that's a weird afternoon, just to be clear. That's a really strange, strange cocktail party. And it's kind of creepy to think about it that way, but until we realize, you know what? 
the 20th and 21st century models of evangelism were not that much different. We would set up very large tents, and we'd have these huge revivals. We'd have some guy scream into a bullhorn and literally try to scare the hell out of people and then get them to repeat a prayer in a specific order. And they'd say, hey, I've won 57 souls to Christ. And unfortunately, a lot of our evangelistic efforts are no more than self-projection. Hey, look at me. Paul says it right there in the text in 12 and 13. They want you to get circumcised so that they can take credit for it. It's all about self-projection. The other aspect of legalism is self-protection. They go hand in hand. Self-projection, self-protection. Paul says they are not willing to suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. See, the cross of Jesus Christ is deeply offensive. Jews would not even speak of that term because it is so heinous and horrific. To this day, the notion that Messiah, the chosen one of God, would be stripped naked, beaten, hanged on a tree to die is so deeply offensive they won't even say the cross. They will say he who is, is hanged on the unlucky tree. But it's equally offensive to Gentiles. If you were a Roman citizen, it was unlawful for you to be crucified because it was so horrible. Only under extreme and rare circumstances would an actual Roman citizen ever be crucified. Very, very rarely. So it was offensive to Gentiles too. And yet there was this group of Christians that was saying, our Lord, our Messiah, our anointed one, the very Son of God, suffered humiliation, was beaten by those he created, and died. And these Judaizers, these false teachers were going around saying, well, now, now hey, listen, we, 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 we don't say in those things. People will think we're crazy. People will think we're offensive. And they tried to have it both ways. Some of us know exactly how that feels. We want people to like us despite our deep gospel convictions. Hey, can't we all just get along? The Apostle Paul says no. You can tell these people because of their self-projection and their self-protection. They will not suffer any ridicule or shame or inconvenience, not to mention pain, because of the cross of Christ. Paul says, for the third time in the book, he uses this word force. Your translation might say compel. These false teachers are trying to force you to be circumcised. And every time he uses it, it is a false doctrine. This is Paul's way of saying these are false brothers. They are exactly opposite of the teaching of the gospel. They are not brothers. It's really interesting. Paul does not condone their behavior in any way, shape, or form. It's interesting. You, you kind of think Paul would say, well, listen, they're trying to do these things, which is not really the gospel. But look, doggone it, at least they're good and decent and moral people that are paying their taxes and not using foul language. No. He says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Not only are they all about self-projection, self-protection, they're trying to get you to obey the law, but they themselves are not obeying the law. They're complete hypocrites. I think Paul has in mind here what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, whitewashed tombs, sparkly pretty white on the outside, but on the inside full of decay and corruption. Paul is pulling no punch here. This is his grand conclusion and summary of what legalism does to a church. It is people pulling away from the cross of Christ and trying to apply our own ability, strength, and efforts. But anytime we begin to think that we bring anything of our own strength and righteousness to our salvation, 
We are heaping insult. We're telling God, that's nice, God. Thanks for the cross. Thanks for sending your son. Thanks for pouring out your wrath on him. But you really didn't need to do that much because I'm actually pretty great too. Paul says, no, not at all. Now then, verse 14. I know I say this just about every week, but this week I really mean it. This is probably one of the most important verses in your Bible. It certainly is this week. All right? This is absolutely huge. Ought to be one of our theme verses that all of us just resonate with and know. Paul says this, says this but far from me. I wish there was a stronger translation in English. This is as strong as you could possibly say this in Greek. It's meganoita. May it never be conceived. May it never even materialize that I would boast in anything other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it never even be an idea or a notion or a thought. It's his way, as strongly as you can say it in the Greek, of saying, oh, heck, 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 no. May it never, ever be that I would be tempted for a nanosecond to boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has become, or the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's so much in this verse. May it never materialize that I would boast in anything other than the cross of Christ. In other words, let me rephrase that. Paul says, the thing in my entire life of which I am most proud is what somebody else did. And I didn't deserve it. That's the thing I am most proud of. That's the whole central thrust of Galatians. The thing that Paul is the very most proud of in his life is the finished work of Jesus on behalf of somebody else. There's so much here. The cross. What does the cross mean? It is the crux of human history. It is the fulcrum point, the hinge of human history. You would never boast in somebody's death unless it meant something. And in this case, that person is now alive. It accomplished something. It has been proven. It has been received and accepted. Paul says, I boast in that. Nothing that I bring. In fact, I'll say in Philippians 3, all of my best efforts, I now count as filthy rags and filth. I only boast in the finished work of Christ himself. To the extent now that Paul's thinking is theologically changed and ours is to be theologically changed as well. Paul says the world has been crucified to me. I see the world system. It doesn't mean all the population and the peoples of the planet being crucified. No, 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 no. But the system of godlessness, the system of self-righteousness, the system that allures me, draws me, tempts me to be my own little g-god, that has been nailed to the cross of Christ. This is Paul's point in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. The weapon of mass destruction that, that the enemy, enemy yields has been nailed to the cross. And not only that, my sin nature, the thing that I enter this world with, that is drawn to self-righteousness, that is drawn to sin, all that stuff, man, it is dead to the world. I'm slippery, Paul said. The world can't hold me. It's trying to sink its teeth into me, but I'm slippery. That part of me that would be so drawn by worldliness is also, for all intent and practical purposes, it has been nailed to the cross with Christ, as it were. So Paul's saying, because of the theological, historical truth of the cross of Christ, I now walk around my world seeing it and myself differently. All of the stuff that is arrayed and aligned against me in this world has been defanged and declawed. 
This is a massive, massive, important verse for all of us to change and impact our theological thinking. Well, verse 15, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Love this verse. I'm so, so glad that Paul puts this in here. With one little sentence, he wipes out all liberals and all conservatives. Do you see what he does here? It's not about circumcision. It's also not about uncircumcision. If you believe it's in either of those areas, you are on an adventure in missing the point. It's not about either of those. I, I can practice. Look how, look how, oh, look how easy I am. Look how malleable I am. Look how, look how much I, I partner and coordinate with all these other belief structures. No, that's not the point either. You've, you, you've missed it. Well, I'm such a fighting fundamentalist. I do all this stuff. It's not about that at all, Paul says. You know what it is about? It is about a new creation. Oh, this is the gospel. I am now a different creation. I am indwelled by the spirit of the living God himself. He could not possibly be closer to me in this age than he is right now because he indwells me. I am a citizen of the age that is as yet to come, even though I live in the present evil age. I am a new creation. Now, when I become a Christian, it's not like God somehow transforms me into another being. Like, oh, there was the fleshly fallen Eric, but now he's a giraffe. No. Oh, look, now he's a coffee table. No. I'm not some dude named Manny living in Jersey. No, I am Eric Barton in Christ. And that is my forever name tag. I am a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says the same thing. I am a new creation, and that's everything. It's not about my obedience. It's not about my observance. It's not about my recognition. It's about the fact that I am a new being indwelled by God's Spirit, and that is everything. My name is Eric Barton in Christ, and that is everything. In verse 16, Paul says, And as for all who want who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. Paul's sort of final summary prayer is that they will have peace and mercy. I think it's interesting that grace is missing from this. And we'll find that in verse 18. But peace and mercy, why? Because Paul plants these churches in his first missionary journey. And already before he even gets back to Antioch, his sending church, there is division there is conflict. There is divide in these, in these churches. He prays for peace. May there be unity as we gather around the cross of Christ. It is impossible to be arrogant staring at the cross. It is impossible to have an air of superiority over anybody else when I stare at the cross of Christ. I cannot stare at the cross and think that I am better than you. Nor can I stare at the cross of Christ and think that you are better than me. So he prays for them peace. He also prays for them mercy. I'm touched by this. These false teachers, these false brothers had done him harm. They had tried to disparage his reputation, his authenticity, his authority. They tried to cut off his financial support from these churches in Galatia. And Paul still prays for them mercy that they would not get what they deserve. Reminds me of Jesus, reminds me of Stephen, reminds me of Paul. He prays for them mercy, lest they arrive at the final judgment seat of Christ and the time has expired and the opportunity is extinguished. He prays for them mercy, peace and mercy. 
to all of you churches in Galatia and to the Israel of God. You know, I could spend weeks on this and uh, I would never see you again. So I'm not going to, but books and books and books have been written about this. What is Paul talking about? What does this mean? Your translation might say even to the Israel of God. That's fine. I disagree. That's okay. What's going on here? Paul is still saying Israel is not done yet. The Apostle Paul will use the word Israel 66 times in his 13 epistles, and every single time, including this one, he's talking about national ethnic Israel. He is not talking about the church, as some say. Some will say, well, the church has replaced Israel. No. God still has a plan for his people because he swore by himself, I will never divorce Israel. Israel has been, is, and will always be God's people. But that does not mean that they are all saved. It's not the same thing. I hear Christians all the time say, well, if they're God's people, then they're all in. No, they're God's people. He has protected them. He has preserved them through millennia of persecution and holocaust and attempts at annihilation. They are his people. That does not mean they are all saved. Paul's heart Romans 9, 10, and 11, is that his own people, his own countrymen, Israel, would return in repentance and submissiveness and yieldedness to God, and that they would receive and accept Messiah as king. In fact, he goes so far to say, I would rather be condemned if it meant that my people would turn back to God. His prayer is still for God's dealing again with Israel. Salvation has always been, will always be, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. That has never not been the case. Paul wants that, even for his people Israel. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. <laughs> this is the Apostle Paul, remember, writing in all caps with bomb emojis next to it, saying, now that's the end of the matter. I'm not going to talk about this anymore. I remember my dad saying, that's it. It's my final word. Don't bring it up again. And then I would, would, and there would be violence, and then I wouldn't anymore. This is sort of Paul's deal of saying, that's it. Don't let anybody bring this up anymore. This is my final word. It is not about our obedience or our observation. It is about the finished work, the obedience of Jesus. Let nobody cause me any more trouble, for I bear on my body, the marks of Jesus. Paul, on his first missionary journey, comes into the region of Galatia, this village of Lystra, and they throw rocks at him until he's dead or almost dead. Certainly mostly dead all day. He returns home almost immediately after that, certainly still feeling and nursing the wounds of having had rocks thrown at his person until he was dead. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. I feel it. I am willing to suffer. I am willing to be persecuted and suffer bodily harm for the cross of Christ. One of the ways you can tell, a legalist, they're self-protectors. They won't do it. Paul says, nobody questioned me. I'm the one who's willing to take the stones. My opponents are not. Mic drop, end of political debate, Paul wins. Now, some have said, well, what are, what are those marks in Paul's body? The literal word is stigmata. I bear in my body the stigmata of Jesus. So did he have the marks of Christ's crucifixion? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, I am willing to suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. Some have said, well, did Paul get some really awesome tattoos? 
in the places that, no, no, he did not get awesome tattoos. What's amazing is Paul writes the letter to the Galatians in about A.D. 49, after his first missionary journey. He will take at least two, if not three more missionary journeys, in which he will be flogged by the Jews five times. He'll be beaten with rods in Philippi and Thessalonica. He'll be shipwrecked four times, be stoned, who knows how other many times. He doesn't even have any idea of the marks that he will bear for his Lord Jesus. These marks in the Greco-Roman world, the stigmata, a Roman master would brand his livestock or his slaves to show ownership. Paul's saying, the scars and the wounds on my body are the brand marks of the mastery that the Lord Jesus has on me because of what he has done for me. Paul never flinched all the way to the end of his life. Well, finally, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. Paul's great grand summation. Grace, unmerited favor of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love Paul's pastoral heart. He's already called these Galatians idiots, fools, and bewitched ones. Now, if you read that, you're like, gosh, uh, I must be out. Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm upset at the contradiction of the gospel of grace, but no, 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 no. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. You are my brethren. He begins the chapter, he ends the chapter with brothers. I absolutely love that. They are his brothers in this deal. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's his way of saying you're a whole person. May it transcend all that you are, all that you think, and then it will work itself out in all that you do. May you be characterized by grace in your entire personality. Brothers, amen. This great Aramaic, Hebraic word of saying, yes, may it be exactly as I have said. May you be characterized by grace because it's all about his obedience, not about yours. Believe, be saved, and be. All of which, as we conclude our study in the book of Galatians, leads me to three very quick implications, three things that I hope impact our thinking as we conclude this series. First point is this. The human problem requires a divine solution. The human problem requires a divine solution. The human problem is sin. Anything done apart from faith, Romans 14, 23. Anything apart or outside the righteous character of Christ. I've said this a time or six, but I'm going to say it one more time. There are only two religions in the world. One that says, if it's to be, it's up to ye or to me. And then there's Christianity that says, it is finished. There is a human problem. And every other system of religion is saying, we can fix our human problem. If we just get together, if we just agree, hold hands, plant trees, make awesome guacamole, we can solve the world's problems. No, we cannot. It is a human problem, therefore it requires a divine solution. This is the cross of Christ. It is the crux of human history. It is God's divine solution to the human problem. God shed his own blood. Did you hear that? God shed his own blood, that of his son, 
for being in very nature is God. God does not require the shedding of our blood unless we reject the shedding of his. Do you see? You know what's even great news on top of that? Not only does he not require my shed blood, nor does he require my sweat and tears. He doesn't add that recipe. Well, it's all your blood, sweat, and tears, and maybe even a little elbow grease as a garnish. Nope. My human problem requires a divine solution, and God gives it freely. Second point. This would surprise you. I'm sure it won't. In a Bible church, our second point, very quick, doctrine matters. Doctrine, what does that mean? It means teaching. Doctrine matters. In other words, what we believe matters immensely. So many people groups in our world, in the midst of increasing relativism of whatever is good for you is good for you, whatever is good for you is good for you, whatever is good for me must be good for me too, believe that really it's all just about how you live. It's just about how good you are, how hard you try. But our Bible comes to us astonishingly light in the area of of behaving. Our Bible comes to us and spends the vast majority of the Gospels telling us about what Jesus did and very, very little amount telling us what we should do. In the entire Gospel of John, the first 11 chapters cover the first 33 years of his life, very, very briefly. But the last half of the Gospel of John spends talking about the last week of this one man, of this Jesus The last half of his book talks about the death of Jesus. Why? Because it's not about our obedience. It is about the death of Jesus. That is the content of our faith. I hear people say, well, I'm a person of strong faith. I'm a very spiritual person. And I say, in what? In what? In your own ability? In your own thinking? In your own ideas? Well, how far will that get you? No, we have to have a content to our faith. That Jesus is who he says he was. That's what faith is, living in the world, looking at the world, loving in the world as if the story of Jesus is all true. Faith has to have content. And then we become a people of wisdom. Wisdom, where we begin to see the world through God's eyes, where we begin to think God's thoughts after him. We begin to be the kinds of people who, as Tim Keller says, are now equipped to deal with the 80% or more of life that comes to us that is not explicitly covered in the pages of Scripture. Because we are thinking God's thoughts after him. We are seeing the world through his eyes. That requires boasting in the cross. Third point, very quickly, get grace. Get grace. I mean that as a double entendre. I want you to get grace, and I want you to get grace, to understand it. What I want is for each of us to, as much as possible, really understand what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. That's the gospel. Allow that to really begin to seep into, sink into our souls to the extent that it changes our thinking about God, our thinking about ourselves, and our thinking about one another. Now, some of you have been here all series long. Some of you are visiting for the first time. Welcome. But way back on January 15th, I put up a list of 12 things by a guy named Jerry Bridges. This is how you know if you don't yet get grace. And I pray, I have hope.
hoped, I have been praying that over these 20 weeks that the Spirit of God, by His Word, among His people, would move the needle ever so slightly, or perhaps for some of you, very dramatically, toward grace. I'm going to read again this list that I read back on January 15th. This is how you know if you don't get grace. Jerry Bridges says this, You know you don't understand God's grace when you, number one, live with a vague sense of God's disapproval. You just sort of feel like God's always disappointed. Now for some of you, I got your emails way back in January, and you said, man, that's me. I hope that God has moved the needle away from that since January 15th. You know you don't understand God's grace when you feel sheepish, bringing your needs before him when you have just failed him. I've just erred in thought or word or deed, but I, but I have need. I, I want to intercede for my wife or someone in the hospital for a financial situation, but I can't because I've disappointed him again. Nope. You've misunderstood the glory and the scandal of grace. When you think of his grace as something that makes up the difference between the best you can do and what he expects from you. I just need a little boost, God. He says, no, you need my son on the cross. You know you don't understand God's grace when you feel you deserve an answer to prayer because of your hard work and sacrifice. You owe me, God. I've been good. I've been righteous. You're Checking your list, checking it twice, going to find out if I'm naughty or nice. Oh, wait, no, that's actually not God. That's somebody else. You know you don't understand God's grace when you assume that 1 John 1, 9 about the confession of sin no longer applies to you now that you've sinned so many times you've used up all your credit. Like I can't go to God with this again and, and, and confess this sin again because he's got to be ashamed of me. I know I am. Nope misunderstood the glory and the scandal of God's grace. You know you don't understand God's grace when you feel more confident before God if you've been faithful with your quiet times, prayer, witnessing, tithing, etc. <laughs> hey God, I have been killing it this week. How about you and I do some talking? Praise be to God. Nope. Because that's you relying on your efforts, your observance, your obedience. You know you don't understand God's grace when you can't honestly say that you see yourself as blameless in his eyes. Like, I just don't really believe that, that I deserve his forgiveness. Bingo, now you get it. You don't. But can you believe that he sees you as blameless, which leads to the next one, number eight. You aren't experiencing consistent peace and joy in your life because you don't really believe that you're fully ex accepted by the only one whose opinion matters. You don't really believe that God likes you. <laughs> like you get it, uh, yeah, God loves me because I was part of the world, but really, uh, when God sees me, he has this giant clothespin on his nose. Uh, uh. Actually, no, God doesn't have a nose, and where would you find a clothespin that big? No, he's not holding his nose. Do you know what? The Milky Way is his refrigerator, and your picture's on it. He doesn't just love you, which he does. He likes you. He's crazy about you. You know that the scriptures are that he cannot wait. He is eager to spend all eternity face to face like a friend to a friend. He doesn't just tolerate you. He loves you. He likes you. He desires to be with you. Grace. You know you don't understand God's grace when you shy away from asking God for things because you think it annoys him. 
Oh, sorry, God. I know you're probably pretty busy. This has got to be really vexing to you. But hey, uh, you know, my wife's got a brain tumor kind of a deal. No, you don't understand grace. You don't earn the right to talk to God. No, 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 no. Grace, whose we are. You fear that the day may not go as well as expected because you missed your quiet time. Or number 12, you assume you can do something to make him love you more or make you make him love you less. You cannot. I pray that that list from Jerry Bridges, all of us will move away from and toward grace, that through the message of Galatians, all of us will get grace all the more. See, Jesus is the answer. It's not about our obedience or our observance. It's about his. We are invited in to believe, be saved, and therefore be. And so I want to leave one last little uh, physical reminder for all of us. For the history of the church, the church used these two fingers to be the symbol of the cross. I want you to do this. I want you to cross your fingers. Some of you are thinking, I don't do that. What do you do today? Cross your fingers. For a long time, the church sort of lost track of this. And this became sort of a good luck charm, a rabbit's foot of, oh, golly gosh, I sure hope this happens. Cross my fingers. I want it to. And it was sort of like, a, hey, cross of Jesus is a good luck charm. How deeply offensive that the death penalty of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings gets reduced and distilled down to a rabbit's foot. Or you might have seen this. I'm going to cross my fingers and then make eye contact and lie to you. Because, you know, I've got my fingers crossed, which means the cross pays for that sin so I can just get away with whatever I want to get away with. Also a travesty and a tragedy that the cross of Christ would be used thus. Instead, I would love for the cross of Christ to again be the thing that we as a church, as a people, as a community of faith, as we are known and as we know one another, that we would even greet one another this way. And we've got to make sure that both fingers are clearly visible. <laughs> Otherwise, that's not okay. But that when the system of the world begins to allure me, draw me, tempt me, oh, that's right. That part of me is on the cross. And you just tap your heart, tap your soul, tap your mind. That part of me been crucified because of the cross. Of I boast in the cross of Christ. And when that part of the world begins to allure me, draw me, tempt me, drag me down, oh, that's right. Paul says that that part of the system of worldliness has already been nailed to the cross. Paul says it's all about a new creation. Because of the cross of Christ, I am a new creation. I am in Christ. The Spirit is in me. We are a part of of the fellowship of God. That we would be characterized as a people of the cross, not for good luck, not get out of consequence free, but that we would boast in nothing but the cross, that we would believe, that we would be saved, and that we would be. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this morning, for your word, for your spirit, and for your people. Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who does not know you, they're still trying to slug it out by obedience or observance or whatever else, that the penny will drop, that you will lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus, irresistibly by grace. 
and they will step out of darkness into light, out of death into life. They will recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who lived a life that fulfilled the demands of the law and paid the wages of sin, which is death. And he offers the exchange to us freely and with great joy. May we accept it. May we believe. And for those of us who do believe God, would you move us all the more closer to getting grace? We would have freedom in Christ. We would adhere to no other gospel, for there is no other gospel. We would boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. We would be regalvanized all over again at the finished work of Jesus and not at any of our own burden or effort. God, we pray all these things the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks so much again for being with us this morning. If you are visiting, we are so delighted that you're here. We're glad that you're here. Please come back. We'd love the opportunity to meet you. Let me ask you all to stand for a word of benediction as we wish you all a very wonderful, safe, joy-filled, grace-soaked Memorial Day weekend. Now, may our God, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for every good deed. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.